If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, beautiful friend, and welcome to In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen, and today our conversation is with Mary Morrissey. Mary is the founder of the Brave Thinking Institute and has made it her mission for over four decades to empower people to create lives they love living. You already know that I'm all about that conversation. (laughs) As a sought-after expert, Mary has created a powerful transformational system that has her standing among the elite teachers in personal development. Through her books, live events, masterminds, and online programs, she's helped hundreds of thousands of people all over the world achieve new heights of spiritual aliveness, financial prosperity, and authentic success. In her new book, Brave Thinking, Mary shares her own brave thinking journey and offers tools to creating the extraordinary life that you dream of. Let's get in the details with Mary. Mary, welcome. Thank you, Karen. I'm happy to be here. Well, we had a couple of minutes just to catch up, and I did uh, let you know, very transparent, that's how I roll, that I went down so many rabbit holes of your videos and your work, and I was like, oh, well, this is certainly someone that I feel like would be in my inner circle. So first, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for sharing in such a gracious way, in a very generous way, all of the wisdom. And I, I mean, you are definitely a student of life, but you continue to also be a teacher because you share every everything that you're learning. You're walking in your gifts is what I'm saying, Mary. So thank you so much for fully embracing that. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) Well, one of the lines that I heard in one of the many videos that I watched touched me right in the depths of my heart, even past my heart, definitely down into uh, my soul. And what you said was, you cannot like the situation, meaning you you have permission to not like the situation you're in, but you still should do your best while you're in it. Now, that means a lot to me, but what does that mean to you? And, you know, there were many, many years of my life before I began to understand more about how powerful the mindset I'm, I'm choosing has over the entirety of my whole life. I used to feel, um, I grew up in this, that life is happening to me. And so at uh, the undercoat of that is I'm a victim of if something's happening that I like, great. But if it's something happening I'm not, I don't like, I'm a victim of that. Versus I may not, I can't change the weather. There are things I cannot change. There are things happen. But the way I approach it is completely up to me how I deal with it, what I think about it, whether I think this is horrible, it's going to wreck everything forever, or I there's nothing in me that likes this. And yet, inside everything, there has to be a seed of some kind of good. And by golly, I'm not going to go through all this and not find some good in it <laughs> and then capitalize on it. Absolutely. So different approaches to... So I, I came along the way I began to realize I can have a condition without the condition having me. I can have a situation without the situation having me. And whether that's a diagnosis, whether that's a divorce, whether that's a major loss, uh, my death, I mean, anything that, that are the really tough things that happen in human existence, you don't start there. You start just grappling with the situation. But ultimately, the opportunity comes when we can have that situation without it completely dominating, dictating what's going to be in our future. We have complete authority over our thinking. 
Mm-hmm. And it does take a level of, well, first, it takes a lot of practice to create more space within, which is what I'm hear- hearing you describe is that you can feel two conflicting emotions at the same time. First of all, that's what it's like to be a complex human, right? <laughs> you can see somebody on vacation and feel joy for them, but also sad for yourself that you're not on vacation. Now, that's an oversimplified exactly. version of it. Powerful, powerful insight you just brought up. And most people don't know that you can have two feelings at exactly the same time. And a part of you is this and a part of you is that. It doesn't make all of you, but you want to honor those different parts. Mm, exactly. And and what can we do to create that expansion inside of us to open ourselves up to notice that we may be feeling more than one thing, but also to honor that so that we can make an intentional choice on how we respond to those feelings within. You gave the right word, and the word is notice. You can't change something you're not noticing. Mm -hmm. The number one skill for anyone who lives a more empowered life is the practice, not just now and then, but the living into the practice of noticing what you're noticing. Mm -hmm. The thoughts you're having, the feelings you're feeling, As you begin to notice what you're thinking about things, you can notice whether the thought pattern you're in is expansive or it's contractive. Mm -hmm. And the first place of the creation of those thoughts is in our emotional system. We feel it. We go, oh, and and, but we we can keep thinking thoughts as if those are the only thoughts we can have about it. Mm -hmm. So we can challenge the thoughts. We're thinking, well, what if that's not true? What if there is something in this? that actually I'm going to look back on and recognize that while I hated the experience of it, where it took me, I would wish for everybody because it took me to so much more of myself. Yes, absolutely. We sh- I shared a little bit of my story before we hit record and my listeners do know that, but for any listener who's new in this episode, I shared with you how when I became a widow at a, at a young age, that actually put me on the path to what I now feel very passionate about. And I would never wish any of the details of my story on anyone else, honestly, because it wasn't just losing my husband, but it was losing my house and my car and my job and friends and relationships and all of this stuff that came crash. I would never wish even a portion of that on anyone else. And so I remember when I was writing my book thinking, but how can other people have the end result of this without going through something so traumatic? Do you think that people can come to this new level of awareness and growth without going through a tragedy? Yes, because it happens all the time. Mm. But there, in the way most of us respond is we impact to make change. We need some kind of impact where there's a shift in awareness, a shift in perception. Uh, often that happens through negative impact. So you get impacted by a situation or a condition or a job or a disease or a broken heart. But there's also positive impact, and that's chosen growth, where you do what you're doing, Karen. I mean, you, you look into different opportunities for how I can't change what's happened, but I could change how I'm going to be with what happened. And, and you begin to bring impact into your life through chosen streams. So why it's important to keep coming to, you know, in the details and listen to this podcast is every single time there's the opportunity for an impact in the trend of my thinking, in the awareness I'm having, because that dictates all the things that are going to come behind it. 
Mm-hmm. And how did you find this level of awareness? What kind of journey were you on where all of a sudden you realized that it's not just about what I'm doing, but it is very much about what I'm thinking, which then will manifest into the different areas of my life that I see. How did this start for you, Mary? With a negative impact. <laughs> mm. I had, so let me tell you just a quick, probably five minute story. I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, a suburb of Portland in a high end part of uh, Portland, Oregon. Mom had a great mom and dad. They were best friends and lovers their entire 63 marriage, uh, three year marriage. So I'm raised in a great family. I'm in high school. I have a high school boyfriend. He goes off to college. Uh, It's my junior year of uh, school. I'm I'm on the drill team. I'm vice president of my class. Have a lead in the junior play, and I'm homecoming princess. And spring break, my 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 high school boyfriend, who's now in college, comes home. I get pregnant. So May one, I'm now telling my mother and dad that I am pregnant. And my mother wept for me as if I had died. This is 1966. We have a very hasty 10 person wedding. And a couple of weeks later, the principal of the high school calls me to his office and he says, are these rumors I'm hearing about you true? And I said, well, if the rumors are that I am pregnant and married in that order, then yes, they're true. And he rolls his eyes and he goes, Mary, you have terrific grades and great honors, but you are not going to be allowed to return here for your senior year. It would be totally inappropriate for a pregnant girl to get mixed in with the normal girls. But if you want a high school diploma, which I did because I had always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I did not see getting pregnant as a dead end. I saw it as a detour. I wanted that. Uh, you know, I'm now I'm pregnant. I'm, I want this baby. And even though I'm very young. And so he says, but if you want a diploma, there's a place you can go. It's across the river. Told me where it was. Not during daylight hours. It's after dark. where the pre- It's a regular high school during the day. And then at night, we turn it into a high school where pregnant girls and delinquent boys can go to school together. The next fall, I drive across into a part of Portland I hadn't been allowed to drive in after dark and park my car. And I'm walking up the steps to this school that's Washington High School during the day and now becomes Washington Evening High School at night for the rest of us. And I'm thinking every girl here is either pregnant, has a baby, every guy is some kind of delinquent. This is my new student body. Now, if you think back to where you were at the beginning of your senior year, it was probably a very different experience. So my son is born in December. I graduate in May from Washington Evening High School. And in July, I'm in an intensive care ward in a Portland hospital, having been diagnosed with fatal kidney disease. One kidney is totally destroyed with nephritis, kidney disease. The other has 50% destruction, active nephritis. And in 1967, without dialysis, transplants available, this is a death sentence. And everyone is sorry. They know I have this little baby and boy and who's living, my husband and baby are living with my mom and dad now. So my mom can watch our son while he's working. And I'm in in a hospital bed and I'm told the most, if we can get the blood toxin level in my body reduced enough to remove the one kitty that's totally destroyed, maybe I'll have six months to live. And I'm terrified. And I'm my, the God of my upbringing was not a friendly place to go when you felt like you had really screwed up. And clearly I had screwed up. I mean, I can't even go to school where I was going. I'm kicked out. My girlfriends that I grew up with, the three, there were four of us, uh, those mothers got together and decided their daughters could no longer see me or talk to me as if what I had were contagious. 
And so I'd lost my friends, my school, and I'm relegated to go to school with delinquents. I mean, pretty clear, you're a bad person. I'm a bad girl. I mean, that's what happens. And so I, my belief system at that time was I'm being punished. I don't even deserve to live now. And then the night before the surgery was scheduled to remove the right kidney, a woman walked in my room, identified herself as a chaplain, uh, asked, she said, I, every time I come, I get a list of the most uh, serious surgeries that are happening in the morning. Your name's at the top of the list. Would you like someone to pray with you? I was scared and I said, okay. And she pulls her chair next to my bed, didn't do anything that I ever defined as prayer or looked like prayer to me. She talked with me. And it began this way. And she said, would you be willing to tell me what's been going on in your life the last year or two? So I told her my story. And then she looked at me compassionately, uh, Karen, and she said, Mary, everything's created twice. I, you know, Today, I would say I had no landing page for that. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then she said, you actually know this. In fact, everyone knows it. Almost no one knows the power of knowing this. And then she said, the bed you're lying on, the nightgown you're wearing, the sheets covering you, the walls, the ceiling, the, the floors, the machines you're hooked up to, everything first had to be a thought before it could be a thing. She said, if you did live, what would you do with your life? And I knew immediately I'd raise my little boy and I'd become a teacher. And she said, well, now that you're considering how everything's created twice, could you consider the possibility? Because I hear how much you love your little boy in your story. But I also hear how much you've been hating yourself. You feel like you shamed your school, you shamed yourself, you shamed your family. And now that you're considering how everything is created twice, could you consider the possibility that that self-loathing, toxic thinking might have something to do with the toxicity that's rampaging your body and threatening your life? Nobody I knew, I mean, nobody I knew thought that a thought had an emotional, uh, and the emotion had something to do with what's going on in our bodies. And definitely not uh, in the 60s. It wasn't a conversation that, yeah. It wasn't a conversation, and it, there was no mind-body clinics at Harvard and UCLA and Stanford and all the many teaching hospitals, not in our, in our understanding. And she says, now that you're considering that, she says, imagine that there are infinite possibilities in this universe. Uh, so let's, could, could you imagine that there is a possibility we could do a prayer in the morning when they come, they look at you and they say, wow, you look better. We better test you. And they test you and they say, we can find no evidence of disease in you. Uh, you can get up and go home. Could she, she said, could you believe that's possible? And I told her the truth. No, there wasn't one part of me in that moment that could believe she was going to say some words and they were going to send me home in the morning. I believed way more in my pain than this possibility she put in front of me. Just, all right, if you can't believe that, could you believe this? And she said, but remember, there are infinite possibilities. And the one we decide to focus on is the one that will have more probability in your life. Now, this is before we had quantum physics, uh, unified field theory with Sheldrake or, or the, uh, you know, Talbot's work out of Stanford, the holographic universe. She said, could you believe there's a possibility that we could imagine that where everything that's toxic in your body gets swept up and put in the kidney that's going to get removed. And when that kidney gets removed, instead of getting worse, you just start to get better and you get better and better. Could you believe that's possible? And in that moment, Karen, something happened for me. First time in my life, I didn't believe it. 
but I could tell she did. And so it was the, I wasn't even conscious of doing this, but it was the first time looking back that I, I know for sure I borrowed the believing of someone who was operating at a higher domain than I was. We do not talk about that enough. And I, so I said to her, I don't know if it's probable, but maybe it's possible. And then she latched onto that and said, that's all we need is one corner of your mind open to the possibility. Let's work with that. And then she gave me a pattern of thinking. So I want to say to any of your listeners here today that whatever your challenge is, and we all have challenges. You know, when we went to math class, we were handed problems every day. Not because we were bad people, but because that was the opportunity for greater learning about an invisible law called mathematics, and we would become more proficient with it. We never thought we were doing something wrong because there were problems presented every day. But as we age and become adults, we often think that our problems are our fault. I mean, it's all learning. Everything is learning. So hold a possibility that what looks like your challenge actually has the possibility of being something as you did, Karen. I mean, huge, huge impact. Um, and yet over time, you found a way to actually become bigger than the problem in your life and mm-hmm. take it for good, not just for you, but for many, many, many other people. Mm-hmm. So she says, you know, could you believe? And I said, maybe it's possible. Let's work with that. And then she said, so she did an imagination where we were, you know, I'm just listening and she's scooping up, you know, saying that this, all the toxicity now is moving into the kidney. Uh, it's going to be removed. And then she said to me, so when you, when you uh, come out of surgery, your mind's going to be busy with the pain. You're going to have some pain for a while. When that, as that starts to ebb, your mind, your thinking, is going to want to go down those well-worn paths of thinking that you've been doing. So here's what I want you to do. The moment you notice a self-loathing thought, and this is the key, remember when we, you ask about how you notice, that noticing what you're noticing is the doorway to transformation, yes. real sustainable changes in our lives. So when you notice a self-loathing thought, interrupt it and say, no, that left with the kidney, but you can't just let something go. You have to replace it. And so she said, so say, no, that left with the kidney. And then immediately imagine you're walking up some steps to an elementary school and you're holding a little boy's hand in your hand. He's five years old. Feel the, feel the warmth of his hand. It's your little boy. And you're walking up the steps and there's a, a, a classroom, a kindergarten teacher who's welcoming kindergartners, your little boy's all happy to go to kindergarten. You give him a hug. He goes in his classroom and click, click, click of your heels down the hall and around the corner. And there's your classroom and you're a teacher. Then fast forward and you're sitting in a great big auditorium or stadium and you're seeing all these caps and gowns down and at stage and you hear your son's name called and he walks across the stage and he he's handed his diploma shakes the hand and then raises it up in the air and you're in the stands cheering for your son and so grateful for all the many moments of impact that you were able to bring into his life to celebrate and support him in having this achievement then fast forward and you're sitting in the front row of a wedding and it's your son's wedding. And he's, and you're the mother of the groom and how grateful you are uh, to see him in this really special, precious moment of his life and your teaching career is flourishing. And she said, just keep doing that. She left 
And the next thing I knew is that they came to wake me for surgery. And it was the first time uh, I had slept all night without waking, no matter how much uh, medication they gave me. Uh, I noticed that and then I was off to the surgery. Uh, today, looking back, I would say I had to have become in that moment a what we would today call a unconscious competent. I did what she told me to do, but I didn't do it thinking, well, if I do this, maybe that's going to help the outcome of my health. I wasn't that I wasn't aware enough to do that, but I just knew I felt better thinking about walking him into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So about 12 or 13 days after the surgery, they came in and they said, well, your numbers have stabilized for a few days now. We don't know how long it's going to last, but if you want to go home for a week or two, it might even be a month before you have to come back to the hospital, you'd have that more time with your, your baby. I went home in an ambulance. I was so weak, I couldn't get my head off the pillow. And I had to go to the urologist three times a week to get my numbers checked. And my numbers had stabilized. And then over time, they slightly started to improve and improve and improve to the point where about six months after the surgery, I'm in the hospital in a conference room with the surgeon, the, the specialist, the urologist, uh, other people, and uh, they're scratching their heads. Um, the, and the surgeon says, listen, I saw one kidney destroyed. We removed it. I saw the other kidney. It was shriveled, pockmarked with nephritis. There is no science for why that kidney now is performing as a whole perfect kidney. There's no science for that. We don't know if this will last. Uh, if it does, we won't know how long it's going to last. Uh, all we can say to you is whatever you've been doing, keep doing it. Uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just was, you know, like I said, I was unconscious to it, but I was visioning a life I would love living to the point where I could imagine it to the place I could feel it. I could feel his warm hand in mine. I could imagine stepping into my first classroom. I could imagine sitting at this wedding and feeling what it would feel like to be the mother of the groom. And that was all go forward, live messages to every part of my energy, including my the physical side of my energy. And you know, our body is alive and it responds to you know, <laughs> messages that give life or messages that actually deplenish life. So, uh, but I, and I was happy to get well, but I, I had no interest in how it occurred until years later, when I finally did three, three years later, I finally got myself into undergraduate school and a whole series of things occurred in October of 1971. So many years ago. And uh, something happened that triggered for me uh, the memory of her saying there's all these infinite possibilities, the one you align with, because it really came in a class where they were showing the double split theory. Uh, you fire electrons, they're either going to behave like a wave, or, and how does that occur? And the intent of the experimenter is the director of what's going to occur and how we're part of this energy and related to it. And it was just like, oh, and oh, things started to click for me. And I began to realize life is not happening to me. Life is happening with me. And the thoughts I'm thinking about it either lead me to more expansion or contraction. That was the beginning of decades and decades of study. Mm -hmm. uh, I went on and got a master's degree in counseling psychology. I attended a two-year seminary, earned a uh, doctor, uh, honorary doctorate in humane letters, traveled the world talking to people about how did you bring transformation into your life that led me to a seven-year project 
with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I wanted to say, how did you have, I dreamed for a number of years that I would be able to have a conversation with him. I even went one time to an 18,000 person, I'm in the nosebleed seats of his lecture, but whether it was his books, his lectures, or um, cassettes in those days, I never could hear one wavelength of bitterness or victimhood in his speaking. And I thought, well, how do you have 40 years of oppression? And, you know, and not have you give him a pass for a little of that. I couldn't find one wavelength. I went, how do you think? What do you do? How does that work for you uh, to achieve that level, regardless of circumstances? Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask Nelson Mandela, how did you get sentenced to prison for life? You do 27 years at hard labor. Not only do you get out before you die, then you actually become president of the country that sentenced you to life. Who on our planet does that one guy? So how did that occur? So this is where I began to discover the system I call dream building. Lots of people have dreams. Very few people know how to dream build and break thinking. It's a different kind of thinking than common hour thinking where, oh, I want this. Well, then I have to do this and this and this and this. Mm-hmm. There was no way to figure out or recover from me. Mm-hmm. She said, get on this frequency. You want to you see the pictures on your TV screen change? You got to change the frequency. Yes. yes. You know all these things. I know you know this. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, listeners, maybe you can hear it, but my smile is so big. It's stretching across my face because I remember when I started to have these, I call them downloads, these moments where I'm like, nobody has told me this, but it feels very, very real. What I just heard, like it feels like truth. So, and why is it so clear? If that wasn't in my consciousness, where would that come from? And so when I would have these moments, I would then hear that from someone else. And that's how I knew it was universal. That's how I knew it was universal truth. So a lot of what you're saying is giving me that same feeling, that same sentiment. And one of them that I feel like it's really important to highlight because I didn't understand this when I was first doing it, but I think it could certainly unlock something for our listeners. A couple of things in there you mentioned are very critical to how we think and then how our thoughts start to shape our life. And one of the first things was, as we mentioned, the noticing, because where we give our attention, that's also where our energy goes. And we know this from a very basic principle of, you know, if you are thinking about the worst case scenario, you're going to feel sick inside. You're going to feel stressed. You're, but if you start to even just imagine, you know, as you mentioned, being at a wedding, if you imagine something joyful, a, a moment that brings you great gratitude, then you can feel your body responding to that. So again, it's how it feels, whether it's contracting or whether it's expanding. But what people don't tap into is the second piece here, which is the quantum physics part. And so there's all of these different versions of ourselves that are out here possibly living. Which one are you tuning into? Which one are you giving your focus to, your attention? Because that's where your energy goes. And before I was in the depths of my grief, Mary, when this happened for me, but my son came into my room one day and I had this epiphany because he it was very soon after his dad died and he asked, mommy, are you going to get up? I was in bed. I was, you know, feeling terrible. And I started to see these different pathways. So one was that I was giving up and I could see how that was going to then ripple out into my son's life. He would have a bitter mom who was angry, who was miserable, who, right? Who got stuck in something terrible that happened. Or I saw the path of of giving up. 
And it wasn't like I knew all the different ways that my life was going to unfold. I just saw, and this was a keyword, you said the possibility. And so what happened was, as I saw these two paths, I mean, this visual was very strong. This was the first time that I I saw, I felt how visualization could really take hold inside. And so as I saw these two paths forming, I recognized that whichever one I give my focus to was going to get the energy. And I don't have to have all the steps. I just have to choose first where my focus is going to go. Now, what How this ties to quantum physics is there would be a version of Karen who is miserable and who is bitter and who has become a victim of, you know, the situations in her life. There's a version of that that is possible. And there would be lots of people who would agree with you on that. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And but the other but the way that I heard it was of all the songs that are playing in the world, you can't listen to them all at once. You have to turn one up, the volume up on one. I turned the volume up on being a healthy, happy whole mom again. I decided not to turn it up, but we all have this experience, right? It's that we just don't tune into the fact that you get to choose which one you're turning the volume up on. You get to choose where your thoughts are going. Again, you may notice thoughts that are unhelpful, that are unhealthy, but I love how you mentioned that's a doorway to choosing a different, and I call it a shift, but a different pathway. My question for you is, we know that this is possible. I'm still uncovering. You are much further along than I am. I'm still uncovering the truths that come with this. But there are some people, and I have been in this state, so I I try to pull myself out, but I very recently was in this as well, where we do imagine, we do use visualization, we hope for, we create these possibilities, but we still get stuck in a rut. We still find ourselves operating at a lower frequency. We feel ourselves constricting because maybe it's the weight of the world, right? Maybe it's the demands that are upon us. I'm a single parent. Usually that's where my frequency dips down when I start to feel the demands of all of that. But how can someone or what techniques would you suggest that we use to really stay in that frequency that aligns with our highest self, with our truest self, and with the dreams that we desire for our future? Great, great question. And that speaks to a level of awareness you have to even ask it, okay? So you have a, you start with vision. You said so visualization. So the vision dictates a vibration. So you want to as much clarity in the vision, like walking a little boy into school, feeling his hand. Those are that's clarity. The mind thinks in pictures, doesn't think in words. So if I say to you, the door to the place you live, the sink in your kitchen, the bed you sleep on, most often. You did not see BED, every one of us. We saw a bed, we saw a sink, we saw a door. That's a clue to us that in a visualization, we want pictures, but not pictures like they're on a wall. We want pictures we're standing inside of. Like we're in the story, we're in the movie. Right, and it's a movie, exactly. So I'm walking into school, I'm in the auditorium. So the first step is to be sure you have a clear vision that you can then rehearse, not just with your thinking, but the more you can feel inside of it, uh, the greater the the frequency that you're in harmony with. You're going to be the person who wants the thing, but it's out there and it's going to be in the future and it's going to be hard to get to. Or you're experiencing a portion of today, even three times a day, where you step inside of it and feel yourself to the point where you say, all right, this belongs to me. 
It just hasn't happened yet outside in all the ways, but it belongs to me. So that you begin to generate that relationship with it. That is, there's three phases to what I call dream building. That's the first phase. It's blueprinting. You want a dream house, you spend time evoking what you really want, condensing that to a picture called a blueprint. The next step is bridging. The bridging is where I'm becoming a match for that reality. Because until I'm a match for it, it just stays in the invisible. Mm-hmm. And it can be, you know, I, it, so condensing it into when we're talking about physics, mm-hmm. into its physical form requires relativity that I am related to it enough that there's um, sufficient, what we call sufficiency in, in physics. Think about it. Mm-hmm. You've got water, it can be really, really hot, but it doesn't go through a phase change until it hits 212 at sea level. So that for the a phase change means my it's no longer a vision, it's now becoming a fact. And that rec- the physics of that are I have to be a match to the reality I say I want. How do we become a match? There's many there's a number of ways, but the number one way is to notice what you're noticing. Mm-hmm. That's where you can because imagine you're going down a river called the river of life. And you're in your own boat, but your hand isn't on the helm. So there's no ability to steer around rocks or use the winds and the waves in your behalf. Instead, you're just being buffeted by things that are coming your way. And that's how most people live. They feel like life is happening to them. Once your hand is on the helm of your own thinking, mm-hmm. you can notice and to become, and so one years ago, Karen, I'm, I'm out for a walk because uh, walking like Emerson, other people that have used walking as a tool for connecting. And I hear just loud and clear, Mary, the content of your life is the curriculum of your evolution. Mm. That the way for me to experience more of my own potential self is, is I'm not fighting the content that I'm seeing that as part of the curriculum of my own evolution. So how I become more of a match, my clients, people from all over the world ask, well, when is this going to happen? At the moment I become a more sustained match Mm -hmm. than the person who wishes for it, wants it, or has stories about why it can't happen. Mm -hmm. But many years ago when I met my first real mentor in this, I'd struggled, once you know, I had thought I wanted to be a uh, classical classroom teacher, mm-hmm. but the more I studied about this and studied everything I could find in the field of transformation, and by the way, I did get to meet with Nelson Mandela, and yes, I met and had that conversation with both of these amazing men and many, many others. Before I move on, I just want to say Nelson Mandela said, how did you do this? He said, who in the world does this? And he said, oh, the man who went to prison could never have become president. He was angry, he was resentful, he was bitter. But over the years, that inner transformation that I made, he said, it's it's something I would call climbing the slope of thought. I began to think more empowering thoughts, like instead of thinking for years, well, everything is lost, it's never gonna, apartheid will never end, it's just, this is, everything I did was for, for nothing and life is over. And he said, and then one day a thought came, you know, what if, your being here actually could be part of the ending of apartheid. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. He said, I, there was no part of me that believed that could be true, but I just knew I felt better thinking that thought. And he said it would be, and then I began to, it changed my perspective that if that were true, then would I be thinking these thoughts about my captors or would I see them as people? And it just hit how uh, ultimately the inner transformation that produced a completely different result. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with His Holiness. When I ask him, "How do you do that? How what what? How do you have no bitterness or victimhood?" And he goes, "Oh, we all have friends. Friends, easy love, easy forgive. Ah, mm. oh, we have sacred friends. Sacred friends. Very, very difficult. Very difficult. Mm-hmm. Chinese people don't do this. Chinese government does this. And he says, "Oh, Chinese government, my sacred friend, because." But if Chinese government didn't do exactly what it does, I would never have had to evolve my heart to be bigger than the pain they bring. Yeah. So those kinds of shifts. I love it. Well, what happens is we get ourselves onto the frequency to, right. be- to believe that because you change the thought, but then you got to back it up with an action. Yeah. Is that's where the circuitry gets completed. Mm-hmm. So you, so what can I do today with a great question? Mm-hmm. What can I do with what I have today to move me in the direction of my dream? Mm-hmm. There's always something you can do mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. that some small step, baby, I'm a big believer in baby steps. That's right. Small shifts is what I call them. <laughs> That's right. I'll take you all the way up Mount Everest if you just keep taking them. Mm-hmm. So even what can I do in five minutes? There may be somebody you call and thank them. A, a gratitude that hasn't been expressed puts you on a higher frequency. Mm-hmm. It could be also offering to help mm-hmm. because that puts us in a higher frequency. It could be we know through Penn State's work with positive psychology that if you write something down as if it's happened or happening, you are 10 times more likely uh, scientifically to actually have it occur in your life mm-hmm. because the right and the left hemisphere of the brains now are in coherence with both the vision and the writing and the more distinct or like walking a little boy. Mm-hmm. More specific with those details. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So specificity, clarity is part of having a clear frequency. You know, Jim Carrey's story is a great one. Oh, well, it is. You know, he wanted to, so he writes himself a $10 million check for acting services rendered. No actor in history has ever been paid that. Nothing's happening in his life that says that could occur. He goes every single day, this is part of the thing, to go, you do this not just now and then a week later and a week. The more consistent you are, the sooner you have sufficiency between your relationship with the vision and your vibrational match for it. He would go every single day up at, at sunset to Mulholland Drive, look over the Hollywood sign, and he would imagine getting calls from this director or that producer. And then ultimately the vision would go with him signing a contract and being handed a $10 million check for acting services rendered. And he said, some days it would be easy to feel that belongs to me. And other days it was a heck of a struggle, but I would not leave that place until I could feel this does belong to me. It just hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. First actor ever, as you know, to uh, receive a, t- a contract for $10 million for acting services rendered for a movie called Dumb and Dumber. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who's the dumb one now? Yes. People used to think it was really dumb that I did that. 
But there are so many stories like that all around us. And I, I love hearing them, especially from people who, you know, celebrities or different entertainers or athletes, when they talk about like, listen, where I came from looks radically different than where I am right now, but I had a vision. And the more that I feel like individuals who are highly successful share that, that empowers folks who maybe have not just been, whether they're not open-minded to it, or they just haven't been acquainted with this thought of your thoughts are absolutely the GPS for your life. They are setting the direction. If you can be more intentional about what those coordinates are or the way you're using your GPS, the more you will see the fruit of what you really desire in your life. But key point there, Mary, was that you can't just believe it. All right. Some people think of manifestation as a genie. <laughs> oh, I think this is, I hope, I wish. It dropped in on me. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly have found in my own life, and as I read about other people, and, and you, I, I'm sure, can would agree to this, that it's not just the believing, it is also the building. And what happens in that action, though, is it does start to create more of the energy around you as opposed to just the energy uh, that we are unable to see or, or we don't really connect with because it's unseen, but we are definitely connected to that. And our action helps to bolster it. Exactly. It's actually code for how this all occurs that uh, is available now. You know, listen to this podcast. So if you think about your house, if you enjoy electricity, it's because the house is wired to code and you can have every lamp uh, plugged in, every bulb working uh, and no light unless there's a, a circuitry occurring. Mm -hmm. The energy has to flow through that. So Thomas Edison believes there's an invisible law that governs how we can have light, not just in one place, but and the system. Uh, so he's he's unpacking the system or how it works. Over the many, many years of study, not just in my own work, but the, or philosophies or, or psychology, sciences, the emerging, when, you know, for me, it was an emerging physics understanding that we're proving some of the things that we had been in philosophy and religions. You know, as you believe, so it is done unto you and many, many others. I began to see a pattern. And over the years, my work has been making it very, very simple. And that's what I sought to do in this new book, Brave Thinking, is to make it as crystal clear as possible with easy, simple, replicable steps. After 50 years of studying and over 40 years of teaching and working with thousands of people all over the world, I know this system work. It's at work all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. But once you're aware of it, like you are, Karen, you can transform the moment, transform the day, transform your life. And I will say, even though I'm aware of it, I still have my very human moments. You know, I was just coming out of a funk. And every time that I noticed the feeling, I was just said, okay, I see it. All right, I'm going to do something to counteract it so I don't get stuck there. And so as much as we continue to learn. There you and, go. You can have a funk. You can have a you funk can have a funk having you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And as much as, you know, I continue to learn and grow, I believe that our growth is always tested. And as, as it's tested, that's when we have the opportunity to continue to grow. And so it sounds like after decades and decades of your growth, and I'm sure it's been tested along the way, 
I appreciate you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you bringing it into a simplified step-by-step uh, -step experience through the new book, Brave Thinking. I know that it's going to help so many people. You can get it wherever books are sold. We'll make sure that is also in the show notes. If there's one thing that you hope our listeners would take away once they do buy the book, because they're going to hop off of this, they're going to go get their copy. If there's one thing you hope that they take away from the book, what is that one thing? that every single one of us has far more power than we're aware of to shape and uh, shape our lives and actually be a person of impact in that all the people you know some of them some of them will be interested some of them won't but your life is your message you have children and some of you might have grandchildren or you're searching for that special someone all of all of our life is impacted by the way we think and believe and that's not solid you can change that in a moment oh mary thank you so much thank you for your time and your presence thank you for sharing your wisdom all of our listeners go grab that book right now you know where to get it again anywhere that books are sold mary thank you so much for your time today thank you so much karen this has been in the details if you like the show Tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.